Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a wet and humid morning here in the capital is Neil Odin. Neil is the Chief Fire Officer at Hampshire and the Isle of Wight Fire and Rescue Service. Um, Neil, very warm welcome to you and thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Scott, and hello to all your listeners. Yes, it's uh, not the nicest day for it weather-wise, unfortunately, but luckily we're indoors and away from the uh, rain. Um, I think a good start on the programme today would be by addressing the elephant in the room proverbially, and that's the fact that although it looks as if July the 19th, the new Freedom Day, is going to go ahead, we're recording this podcast in the early part of July 2021, and so we're still living under some form of COVID social restrictions, and that's been the case now in some way, shape or form for the best part of the last 15 or 16 months, going way back to March 2020 and that first COVID lockdown. I appreciate, of course, Neil, that the emergency services have had to continue going about their business normally throughout that period of time. But has the pandemic affected you and your operations at the Fire and Rescue Service in any way? Yeah, thank you, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. So, as you can imagine, uh, the Fire and Rescue Service, um, as an emergency service, has had to stand uh, to at all hours of the day, every day since the very beginning of, of COVID and before, in the way we normally do. Um, so you know, fires have still happened, road crashes have still occurred, albeit we've seen a fair amount of, of change in the profiles of, of the things we would normally attend, then commercial accidents and those sorts of things <clears throat> are quite substantially down, which is great. Um, but one of the challenges I, I guess we face is in light of um, families and loved ones and communities hunkering down during lockdown, our staff, like many others in key organisations, have had to still come to work, have had to still um, <clears throat> work in teams. So we've had the kind of challenge of working with our, not only our representative bodies, the trade unions, if you like, we, we have a trade unions or a number of them <clears throat> in the fire service, um, but also our staff directly to say, look, you know, we've got things in place. You, you, you can be safe, even in the un- uncertain times early on in the kind of pandemic of coming to work. Because, of course, we couldn't um, single out um, individuals and say you can work alone, we can separate you by two metres. Because, uh, as you imagine, fire engines, it's not quite that simple. We have five people, sometimes six people, on fire engines, essentially a lorry going to an emergency. They're sat together um, in a cab. So, you know, above the bubble system was very much how we operated. Um, we were quickly having to move in terms of testing and reassurance for our teams to make sure they could test themselves. Um, but, of course, the fire service is a very small part of the public sector very small part of, of the key emergency services. But some, to some extent, in the early stages, we had to kind of find our own way through this, mm. using Public Health England and others' advice, find our own way through maintaining our core services. I'm delighted to say that not only here, but across the country, we managed to do, to do that really well. And in fact, the sickness levels for us was quite low. Our teams know how to protect themselves from um, toxins and airborne um, dangers. So that helped us think a long way towards keeping our, our staff safe and then keeping each other safe. 
But to say more uh, about the role of the fire rescue service uh, in this time, we are one of those organisations that leans into disaster crisis in any way it can. And um, I, I certainly know I speak for chief officers across the country when we speak about the way that the fire rescue service has lent into this crisis, uh, supporting our NHS colleagues uh, and others, of course, in that work. So uh, to name but a few examples, our teams in intensive care, we in Hampshire had nearly 30 firefighters in intensive care helping to prone patients with the uh, ICU staff. So there's a great example where you know people with clinical skills, firefighters have clinical skills, they handle uh, casualties at the roadside. And those skills are quite transferable into the ward sort of situation with the right supervision. Our teams have also been vaccinating um, and one of our fire stations here in Hampshire has been turned into a vaccination centre. Uh, in mid-June, we hit 100,000 vaccinations administered by our teams in that centre. There's a great example where firefighters can lean into, they have clinical skills, they have other abilities. They are essentially very, very capable engineers that, that can, can come across any challenges, right from cows in ditches through to kind of medical or clinical challenges. And with us putting the right arrangements in place, we can move very quickly to assist uh, our colleagues in all sorts of different walks of life. And the pandemic, if any light has come out of this very difficult time, it's been about uh, an organisation like ours, but across the whole public sector and beyond, of course, in the private sector, really leaning into a, a shared idea about what we need to do to help our communities and our citizens. And I think that's, as a leader, as a public service leader, that's been a, an absolute light in a dark time. Mm. Um, I've always believed if you convene people, if you, if you can convene different partners behind the same problem, my goodness, we're powerful. So often over the last few years of, of either austerity or other challenges that the public sector has faced, and indeed the private sector has faced its own challenges, we've always been in competition. And one of the challenges that we face going forward is, is how we convene our organisations around the common themes which blight our communities whether that be deprivation, whether that be obesity, all the things that we know cause ill health and danger to our communities. We can all get behind these issues like we have during pandemic uh, time to you know, corral and make a difference to our communities. So to, to summarise, I guess, the Fire Rescue Service has been doing what it's been here to do forever, mm -hmm. uh, going to emergencies and rescuing people, uh, getting upstream and preventing things in the first place, going to people's homes and making sure they are safe. COVID-19 brought a different dynamic to that and helping other agencies by driving ambulances, by vaccinating, by helping ICU, but primarily reassuring our community we are here. A number of us, including myself, had key roles in coordinating uh, the campaign for uh, the COVID uh, work um, and the local resilience forums. I'm the vice chair. I led the coordinating group in Hampshire and White to make sure we were linked to the government and the efforts, and that brought its own leadership challenges in terms of uh, liaising with military, central government, local organisations to make sure we had a united and coordinated approach to the to the uh, work we were doing. The fire service made a bit in that, but actually as a public leader, my role stretches well above uh, that and across lots of agencies mm. to convene and corral a set of um, uh, resources to make the very biggest impact uh, over a period of crisis. Now, to some extent, that's relatively simple in crisis because people believe you when there's a crisis. Mm. The more challenges, it's a kind of almost daily challenge of our um, of our ongoing uh, health challenges, our communities' challenges, and keeping them safe and getting people to agree what the key problems are. So I hope there, uh, Scott, you may have wanted to go to my other questions with what I've said so far. 
No, it's absolutely fine, Neil. I think it's absolutely remarkable as well, just the level at which people have been able to put their anxieties and fears aside about the risks of COVID and really bring the best out in themselves. And you mentioned that word resilience an awful lot there as well. Do you think that one of the real sort of bright sparks from this quite tragic time has been that it's made our community stronger and brought us all sort of close together, do you think? Yes, I think that's true. I think resilience, certainly in in my world, when it comes to working with the military, the police, the ambulance service, the health service, uh, and our fire colleagues, you always have to have a belief uh, that things will be okay, and and you you your teams will come through this. And that, as a leader, um, is having that kind of optimism bias. Um, there is a way through. You just got to find it. Um, it helps, you know, in terms of corralling others. And I've certainly found I've very positive feedback about our agencies from agencies that don't normally work in crisis, because they see this this team of people that are that are horrendously optimistic, and uh, that's catching. And uh, but always will drive through the crisis and challenges. Now, as an individual, that's something which we all need to possess. But easier when all those around you are in the same space, even when someone's having a dark day about what this could mean, then. It always drives people like us to say, so what can we do about it to either mitigate, reduce, or change that outcome? Um, and that is always the way we are geared in terms of, of, of um, our response mechanism in coping with crisis. Some crises are very slow time, some are very fast time. Um, and I, I think approaching them in the same way about corralling people behind you, building that, that kind of shared vision that produces resilience and produces belief in a different way of doing things and, uh, and a reduction in the impact of our communities longer term it will be a lifelong regret if we didn't we weren't able to protect more people of course mm. from this this horrible virus as it always is if someone's lost in fire or road crash it, it's something we, we don't want to see anyone lost but i think you know it, it could have been a lot worse had it not been for the efforts that joined up efforts across the piece that's exactly right and in terms of some of the key takeaways from this pandemic to make sure that we don't sort of suffer that scale of loss again as it were um what are some of the key things do you think that maybe you've learned from this whole period over the last 15 or 16 months oh gosh there, there was so, there's so much um really interesting reflection and, and as a leader I, I believe massively in in reflecting not not in a uh, overly critical way it has to be critical but it can't be it can't be diminishing or or, or destructive mm. uh, and I've always been open as a leader to kind of reflections and feedback not even only for myself but others and we've certainly encouraged that across this period of course there's always a danger around public inquiries about the sense of recrimination sense of wanting to point fingers the one thing I've learned uh, about anything like this is it's very complicated and that sense of empathy that sense of trying to understand the bigger system because it's fine for me. And there were times I had these days sitting here in Hampshire, Isle of Wight, um, shaking my proverbial fist at someone up the chain because I, know, I didn't find something out soon enough or there was a disconnect somehow or there was a you know, confusion in the system. But that's inevitable when, you, when you're running a national crisis. And so no blame you know, from me to anyone. Um, I reflect on the complexity of any system in these, in these moments. Daily life, government, local government, organisations in it, it's complicated enough. But when you're rushing, trying to absolutely achieve a fast outcome for a specific risk or threat, then that's really, really difficult. And I know even the military really struggle at this very complicated system. It's hard enough when you're it's your own organisation. You multiply that across lots of different organisations, different systems. It's, it's forgiving yourself and them for that, I found to be really, really helpful, recognising that these things are complex and difficult. 
and uh, however critical you may feel in that moment, that person or that organisation hasn't meant to get in your way or confuse the issue. It is trying to do its best. And, and that sort of empathy, understanding and kindness in times of crisis and you know, trying to drive outcomes is more critical than anyone else. There has been a lot of criticism of leadership over the last year, hasn't there, particularly at the government level? And I think it does have to be appreciated that it is an unprecedented challenge and a very, very difficult job to do because I think we universally favour proactive leadership, don't we? But because we've sort of had that ability to plan ahead taken away from us because we've had to sort of react to the trajectory of the virus, the nation's sort of been sucked into that reactive leadership. And I think a lot of people have outwardly found that quite frustrating, but that's just really kind of the hand we been dealt, isn't it, in the circumstances? It is, and I certainly know no, no great desire to be in, in the seat of anyone in government uh, because those those decisions are challenging, and, and even translating to my scale, decisions that we've had to make here locally in, in our own space across two million people, they're challenging enough. Um, and so, you know, I absolutely, whilst I can feel myself at times get crossed about certain things. Actually, I go back to the point about empathy, and I think you know society itself will obviously be the ultimate judge of this because we're a democratic nation. But actually, I think what's really important is that we, as leaders, stand up for the decisions we made. We we we, we describe them in what we knew at the time, and in a public inquiry, it would is helpful in that regard because it helps people gain trust and for us to garner lessons from those those episodes. I know no one sets out to make mistakes. No one sets out to make poor decisions. They make decisions of what they have in hand at that time. The only you know, challenge, I guess, for us all is, is, is did we do enough to get as much information as we possibly could? Uh, and um, you know, I'd always like to think the answer to that is yes, but sometimes that's for others to judge. So I do feel um, we can all be quite critical of governments or people in senior positions. I've certainly done that myself in the past. Uh, I have certainly recognised the challenges and the frailties of 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 doing so because you know it, it, take, take a walk in their shoes for a moment and know what they knew what would you do different that's the key question exactly right and I think we will have more benefit of hindsight in the near future because as we've touched on already it does look as if social restrictions are going to be going on July the 19th and we'll be moving out of the sort of lockdown period of the pandemic in the UK at least for now and as we approach that period Neil just before we do wrap things up um, what do you think is on the horizon for the fire and rescue service over the next 12 months in terms of your priorities and indeed where can you see sort of society going over the next year as well? Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, and, and we always, the uh, fire service saying about uh, the kind of makeup or putting kit away is as important as getting it out and getting to work and attacking you know, the incident we, we've got in hand. I think the same is true for this on a larger scale for this. So how we sort of scale down from where we are now and have been is, is almost as important as we, as we scaled up. And we know there's lots of really important lessons and habits and things we've built, which we should sustain and we should use into the future. One of those is particularly you know, the, the, the electronic formats that we, we're now you know, very much used to, whether it be Zoom teams or whatever, whatever we use. Mm. Those sort of things are incredibly useful for, well, organizations like mine that have, I have 62 fire stations across an area. Um, now, imagine my managers going around them all. But that's quite a chunk of time, actually. A lot you can do now, technically, without needing to travel around the place. And the same is true for national meetings and other things that we get drawn into. But there's almost an efficiency to that. But equally, there's a productivity to that too, and, and I think we mustn't miss the opportunity for those things. Equally, there's about you know, reinstating of, of the human psychology in this to make sure we get back talking to each other face-to-face where, where it's necessary and where it makes sense. I think you know, there'll be more studies about this, I'm sure, in the coming years 
about the impact of having two-dimensional conversations with people on screens against those in person. That's really interesting in that space. Mm. For us in the pharmacy service, you know, we face uh, you know, a reforming agenda coming from governments around you know, what can the pharmacy service, what is the role of the pharmacy service? And in a way, as I mentioned earlier, for us in my sector, we are you know, our, the way we are regulated it is very um, encourages a broader set of things that we should do from the, you know, the, the, the rather stereotypical cats up trees, which we really do actually, to be fair, um, right through to kind of radiation and leaks. There's a myriad of things the pharmacy service does medical calls, you know, heart attack victims that people often don't hear about and don't know. So I think sort of helping the community to understand on the capacity as to what we can do uh, through to what we are doing day by day, that awareness for our community. So they understand where their tax money is going to, which I think is often missed. Um, and it's not about celebrating or going to competition with others. It's simply about recognising the value money you get out of organisations like the pharmacy service and, and the industry for local government and others. It's very easy to criticise systems you don't understand. It's our job to make sure our community understands them. That's really the focus of the coming year for me mm. and to make sure clearly my staff are safe and well and their mental health is being paid attention to because it's been a, a hell of a time for lots of different organisations, mine included. I want to make sure that they are well and, and face the future with a new sense of experience and learning, but most importantly, a, a health mindset. I think they're two very important things to keep an eye on, both, of course, the role of technology in our day-to-day lives and how that's going to become more of a part of the status quo now that digital revolution has been hastened by the last year or so, but also the fact that mental health and well-being has been significantly amplified as an issue by COVID and how the pandemic is going to have an impact on that in the long term is something we do need to keep a close eye on. I think you're very, very right. And as we start to understand exactly what kind of toll those particular issues are going to take on our daily lives, Neil, over the next year or so. I'd relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the programme just to reassess the situation and catch up on how things at the Fire and Rescue Service are getting on because it's been a real eye-opener and a really, really fantastic experience having you join us on the show today and I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion. Uh, I'd love to, Scott. Always have to come back whenever, whenever you'd like me to. That's fantastic, Neil. And just before we do wrap up, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're not quite at the finish line yet, but I'm confident that better days are ahead of us. Absolutely. And same to you and yours. I'd also reiterate that message to all of the listeners tuning into today's show as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure, of course, to welcome Neil Odin, Chief Fire Officer at Hampshire and the Isle of Wight Fire and Rescue Service onto the show. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Now, today, as always on the programme, we bring a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. And so Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett will be joining us next on the programme. He'll be sharing his take on the events of the last 15 or so months of the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online... The more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of, 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage. 
have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.